1: One of the earliest memories that I have growing up is remembering uh, probably a flannel graph, if I can remember correctly, of the Noah's Ark story being shared with me. It might have been a children's Bible, but this story has been with me all of my life. And as I was told this story as a child, it went something like this. Noah is going to have an opportunity from God to build this giant boat because a big rainstorm is coming. And as this rainstorm comes, uh, fortunately they'll have this boat built and God will save them through their righteousness, the righteousness of Noah and their work with their hands, partnering with God. And, and Noah was supposed to preserve all of life on earth by grabbing two of every kind of animal and bringing them onto this ark with Noah. God saved Noah and his family and put a big rainbow in the sky, which is why we see that today. And that's a nice story. But it didn't take too many years to begin to ask a different set of questions about this story. Because at some point I realized that there's more characters in this story than just Noah and his family and the animals that happen to be saved on the ark. And from their perspective, uh, the the other characters we talked less about growing up, uh, this story isn't exactly a story about a fun boat ride. It was the end of their lives, the end of a journey for them, and that raises an entirely new set of questions about the God I worshipped. Why does this God see fit to destroy all of these people? What did they do to make him so mad? Is this still an option that God would choose to give today? And what makes Noah so worthy of being saved? When you read a story like this, the perspective that you bring to the story dictates what you see in the story. Many of us consider ourselves believers. And as believers in God who know a larger story of what's in Scripture, it's easy to overlook some pieces of this story and see the faithfulness and grace of God. But there are people in this room and around the world who pick up a story like this and they struggle to believe. Maybe they're not yet believers. And and when you read this story, there are all kinds of moral problems that all of a sudden emerge that we begin to ask about a story like this. So let me just stop right now and say... If you're one of those unbelievers who's here with us that's questioning this story, I want to say we are so glad that you're here. In fact, your insight into this story, is seeing this fresh, allows some of us who've read this all of our lives to ask a, a whole new set of questions that are important to ask about this story as well. Because this story has problems. It's violent. It's primitive. It stirs questions. It's been stirring up questions for thousands of years. But I believe that if we look closer at this story like we're going to do today, there are many treasures in this story we often overlook and miss as well. So I want to ask God's blessing to draw out those parts of this story as we look again at Genesis chapter 6 and following. God, we thank you so much for uh, your word for Scripture. We thank you for uh, the fact that it has been preserved for our reading, that we are reading these stories that people have read now for centuries, God, of your faithfulness, of your love, but also showing uh, problematic passages, God, that make us wonder a little bit more who you are. We see in the cross and the resurrection a clear picture of your love, and yet we also see in some of these stories uh, other parts of your character, God, that are a little less, uh, a little more unsettling. So, this morning, God, as we come again to the flood story, I pray that you would enlighten us through your Holy Spirit. And I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ is formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Have you ever wanted to start over again? I have. Now, there were a lot of blessings about coming to Greenville Oaks, but one of them was for a short season, my email inbox read zero. No projects hanging over my head. No to-dos. And uh, five years later, I'll tell you, it doesn't read zero today. Some of you are good enough probably to work through all that every day and get it back to zero. I need some reminders that are there. I try to do my best with it. But there's always a list of to-dos, isn't there? I, I could can, I can show you my schedule this week, and you'd see that, I'm just as busy as so many of us feel in the coming week. It's tempting to want to start over, but I've come to see that starting over just means that a few years later, things will be back to normal again. And when God creates the world, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's fresh, it's clean, this creation God has given to us. It's a clean slate. Animals and humans are living in peace with one another, but then sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve take of the fruit, and all of a sudden, that distance grows between God and His creation. And the first family has a murder within that family, a brother against a brother. And this conflict and violence just keeps growing and growing over the decades and the generations. And by Genesis 6, God is contemplating a do-over. Let me read from Genesis 6. This is the flood story. Open your Bibles there if you would. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So what's the problem here that's presented in Genesis 6? Sin is out of control. The earth has become corrupted. Violence has increased. God's email inbox doesn't read zero anymore. So God decides to start over. In fact, that's one way of reading the the, the flood stories. It's creation 2.0. First model didn't work. It can be improved upon. So let's upgrade the operating system. In fact, listen to the first command that God gives Noah after the flood. It sounds familiar to the beginning of this book. This is in Genesis 9 verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. You see the similarities between the creation story and the Garden of Eden and this story? There's a command there, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's nearly a direct quote from Genesis chapter 1. But then there's the exception. You, You must not eat meat. That's... Nearly a direct quote, or at least the idea of it, from back in Genesis chapter 2. Remember what it says there. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? There's all of this that God gives to them and says, I want you to be fruitful and increase, but but there's also this exception to say, here's what you can't do. God's starting over. Noah's like the new Adam, and Noah ends up failing just like Adam. But back to chapter 6. There's an interesting word choice that's made in Genesis 6, verse 6. I want to read this again. I'm going to read it again because I think this verse is really important to understand who our God is even from this point in the story. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. That word, the third word in that verse strikes me. The Lord regretted? Now, how many of you would be willing to admit that those exact words came out of your mouth last week? I might have said something like that. Colin regretted that he made these three little human beings to walk on the earth. No, I wouldn't say that, right? How how bad of a human being do you think I am? No, really. How many of you whisper these things sometimes? What would it be like to go back to the days before the kids came along? They're a gift, yes, but man, it's a challenge. And that's what God's dealing with a bit in this story. Apparently, the emotion of regret isn't foreign to God. It might sound odd that God would experience emotions like regret, but as you read through the Bible, you notice that God experiences a lot of emotions like we do. God experiences regret here in this story. God is love. God is described as jealous. God delights in his creation. God gets angry. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem A God who experiences these kinds of emotions would have been completely foreign to these people as they hear other stories of other gods that are out there of the nations. Because the ancient Near Eastern gods were unmoved. But this God comes close to His creation. This God is relational. This God loves His people. Verse 6 is important to, to where we're going to go this morning. So let me read it again. The Lord Regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, I want you to notice the emotion behind at the end of this verse because it's easy to mistake this in the midst of regret what he's feeling. The NIV translates it, his heart was deeply troubled. But there's a variety of translations about this Hebrew word here. Uh, The King James Version says, it grieved him at his heart. The English Standard Version translates it, it grieved him to his heart. The original New International Version back in 84 said his heart was filled with pain. The message translates it, it broke his heart. This emotion is one of sadness. God's heart is broken by the direction that humanity has gone. The violence breaks his heart. And this isn't just God's emotion back in the day. When we experience violence in our world, God still feels the same way today. I imagine God sitting on the throne and every time another mass shooting takes place, if there was a Bible reporting what we're going through in 2019 in our nation, it would say the same thing. God, how do you feel after Sandy Hook? It grieves him to his heart. God, how do you feel after Sutherland Springs? His heart is filled with pain. God, how do you feel after El Paso? It breaks his heart. Now, from a 21st century perspective, what God chooses to do in this story seems a little over the line, right? Is that the response of sadness? To destroy all of these people other than Noah and his family? But this was normal in the ancient Near East. People in the ancient world told stories about floods. The Sumerians told flood stories. The Africans told flood stories. The Babylonians told flood stories. Stories about water and its destructive power to wipe out towns, cities, civilizations, and people were fairly common in the ancient world. There were even some stories out there other than the Bible that talked about people building boats to survive those floods that would come. And in these flood stories, all the water coming to destroy humanity was often thought to be this divine judgment for all the ways that we had made a mess of things. It was believed at that time the gods are angry, and this was their way of clearing the deck and starting all over again. So when we come to a story about a flood in the book of Genesis chapter 7, it's not that unusual. This flood in Genesis, this story is like the other flood stories because this God must be like all the other gods, fed up with the depravity of humanity, unleashing divine wrath in the form of a a flood. And, And yet, while this story is like so many of the other stories that would have been around at this time, this story has a strange twist at the end of it that's different from those other stories. Genesis chapter 8 is after this story. I want to read from the second half of verse 21 and following. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Now, this is a new ending. This wasn't how the other stories ended. In those stories, the gods are angry, and everyone dies, and the gods are satisfied. End of story. In chapter 6, God's heart is broken, and that leads to a flood. But in chapter 8, after the flood, God speaks to his heart, the same heart that had regretted at the first part of this story. And what does he say when he speaks to his heart? He says, never again. There's something about the experience of destroying creation with a flood that seems to change God's heart. And we're uncomfortable with that thought, aren't we? Can God change? Can God experience these kinds of emotions? But I don't have any doubt about how the flood changes God's heart. At first, God regrets making humans, he says in Genesis 6.6. But after the flood... He seems to regret destroying the majority of his creation. And his response is to make a promise, to make a covenant that he will never again do what he has just done. Listen to what he says in, in Genesis 9 verse 8 and following. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds. and It will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth, And the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. After the flood, God sets a rainbow in the sky. It's like God setting down his divine bow of retribution. Never again will I do that. What's a covenant, though? That's a question that we have here. A covenant's an agreement, an oath, a relational bond between two parties. This is a brand new idea that had never been conceived of before in any other religion of the day. It's easy to focus on how barbaric this story is until you realize uh, what this story does to God and to his relationship with humans. Because this God is different than all the other gods. This God commits to living with people in a new way, a way in which life is preserved and respected. This story starts like all the others, with divine judgment and a flood, but there's a twist at the end. Everybody doesn't die in this story like the other flood stories. A family is saved and then a promise, a covenant is made to them. This story heads in a different direction, a very different direction, a direction involving rainbows and oaths and covenants. This was not how people talked about the gods at this time. After all, the gods in their stories were were upset and angry and vengeful and capricious and unmoved by the loss of life. That's how people understood the divine at that time. So you can view this story about violence and destruction. Or you can see this as a brand new view of who God is. A God who's better than the rest of the gods who are out there. Not a God who wants to wipe people out, but a God who wants to live in relationships. So yes, yes, this is a primitive story. It's a really, really old story. It reflects how people saw the world and explained what was happening around them. But to dismiss this story as an ancient and primitive is, is to miss that at the time this story was told, it was a mind-blowing new conception of a better, kinder, more peaceful God whose greater intention for humanity is not violence, but peace, peace and relationship. It's primitive, but it's also ahead of its time. And and that covenant God makes with Noah only increases and expands as we read through the book of Genesis. In fact, I want to take us to a different story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. And I I want you to see the difference in God from regretting making humans in Genesis 6 to what happens later on in Genesis 15. Last week, we talked about God launching a tribe ahead of its time with Abram. In Genesis 12, but in chapter 15, there's a revolutionary story that, that often gets forgotten. Now, a word of warning and explanation before I read this story. In the ancient Near East, believe it or not, there were no legal contracts. There was no justice system. There were no attorneys and judges. So how did you know someone was going to keep their end of the commitments you made in some kind of partnership? Back then, they made covenants. And the way they made covenants wasn't by signing their name on a piece of paper. It was a bit more gruesome than that. They would actually cut a covenant with one another. Literally, they would cut a covenant. All right, if you're an animal lover in the crowd this morning, bear with me on this part. You see, covenants in those days were accompanied by a ceremony. What would happen is these two parties that are making this agreement would come together and they would, they would cut animals in half, long ways. And they would separate the halves of these animals on two parts of this walkway, this pathway that they intended to walk down themselves. To seal the agreement, that's what they would do. The, this blood-stained pathway would have these animals on the side and they would walk through the middle of those animals. And what they would say when they walked through the bloody path between the animals was, may it happen to me as it happened to these animals if I do not keep all the words of this covenant. I asked Holly if she wanted to try this out on her wedding day and she thought it was a terrible idea. But we might keep our commitments a little bit more if we had ceremonies such as this. This is pretty awful, right? With that background in mind, I want you to listen to this story. This is a forgotten story, I think, in Genesis, but it is a powerful story. And it tells us about who the character of God is. This is Genesis 15, verse 9. So the Lord said to him, this is to Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So you see what's happening. Abram's setting up this ceremony. Animals are in place. And then he falls asleep. But watch what happens while Abram sleeps. Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Can- Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Listen, this is one of the coolest stories in the whole Bible. Don't miss this. Remember, the way a covenant ceremony works is both parties make an agreement. And then both parties walk through the pieces of the animals, and then both parties are committed to keep their part of the agreement. And if they don't, there are deadly consequences. But that's not how this ceremony works. Remember, Abram's sleeping. And while Abram sleeps, the ceremony occurs. While Abram sleeps, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch passes between the pieces. While Abram sleeps, one party between the two makes a commitment to the other. While Abram sleeps, God promises to give the land to Abram and to his descendants. This is a one-sided covenant. God walks through the pieces. Abram sleeps. This covenant will not be dependent on the faithfulness of Abraham. This covenant will only depend on the faithfulness of God. And this is what changes in God during the flood story, I believe. In Genesis 6, God regretted making humans. And he starts over again with Noah. But it doesn't get any better with Noah, does it? Because after that story, he gets drunk and he curses his grandson. And so after the flood, God comes to two conclusions. First... Humankind is hopeless. (laughs) Hope will not, cannot depend on humans finally getting it right on perfecting this whole deal. Instead, hope is going to depend on a faithful move from God. And that's the second conclusion God makes. Hope will be dependent on God's faithfulness regardless of the faithlessness of his people. God makes a decision to maintain relationship, to keep covenant with humans based on his faithfulness rather than our perfection. He chooses not to let our rebellion rebellion sway him from his grand dream for the cosmos. And that's why God walks through the middle of animals while Abram sleeps. Because the covenant God is making with his people cannot depend on our perfection. Can I get an amen? Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for the rebellion of humans. We see that throughout this story. But from here on out, God is covenanting to to be faithful himself to Israel. And we continue to benefit from this decision, don't we? God is still remembering his covenant every time he sees a rainbow in the sky. God still walks through animals while we sleep. God is still making covenants while we can't seem to keep our end of the bargain. Or in the words of Paul that James stole from me earlier, (laughs) Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Genesis 15 isn't a one-time story. It happens over and over again with God. The love of God on the cross is consistent with the God of the Old Testament, who makes covenants with people who can't ever seem to keep their end of the bargain. Don't you think there's some connection maybe between Garden of Gethsemane and that story where they're sleeping and Jesus stays faithful? Now, I admit this view of God can seem problematic. A God who changes his mind, that can seem like a weaker God than we want. We want a God who's the same yesterday and forever. And that's the tension of this story, isn't it? That's what some of you have been thinking through is, how can God change his mind? How can he regret in the midst of being the same in all of these things A God who experiences regret and jealousy and anger and love is different from all the other pictures of God out there. Even from some of the pictures I was handed of God growing up. But I can't get away from, from the way the Bible describes God in these stories. This God loves his creation. That's the difference between him and the ancient Near Eastern gods. Those gods could care less about human beings. But the minute this God moves close to humans, he loves is the moment he experiences the risk of love. And any of you who've been in a relationship or had children, you understand the risk of love. The risk of love is that we offer something that we can't guarantee will be offered back to us. We can't guarantee it will be reciprocated. And God is love. And if God is love, then emotion is always going to come with it. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is Hosea chapter 11. The book of Hosea is written at a time when the covenant God made with his people is being strained. People of God have strayed from their relationship to God. They've pursued other lovers and other gods. They've not returned the love that God so graciously gave to them. And in Hosea 11, you can feel what God feels in this story because this God is not unmoved. You feel his betrayal. You feel his anger. That's not where this chapter ends. I want to close with this from Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Listen closely, pay attention, feel what God feels. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. The chapter begins with God recounting in a nostalgic way that time when Israel was young as a child. Some of you know those same feelings, right? He bent down. He touches the child's cheek. He remembers when it walked for the first time, this child. But that nostalgia quickly turns to anger. Verse 5. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How how can I make you like Zeboi? my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. Nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities." What does that scripture do to you? You feel that catch in God's voice between verses seven and eight? You sense the emotion? This God has made a covenant with his people, this God is fully invested. This God will not destroy them or hand them over. This God is a better God than you can imagine. This God is reckless with his love. This God is committed to us when we remain uncommitted to him. This God is like the father and the prodigal son who can't wait to meet his son and run toward him when he comes home. This God leaves the 99 to pursue the one. This God's love is overwhelming. This God's love is never ending. This God's love is Reckless. It's deep. So what's our response to a God like that? Our response to a God like that is gratitude. Our response to a God like that is repentance. Our response to a God like that is worship.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Instagram. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.